0: please stand for the, for the for reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. This is God's word.
1: This morning we're continuing in our study of Second Corinthians. Three years ago in his book, Evangelism in Exile, Elliot Clark wrote, We all know that a seismic cultural shift is taking place in our land. The social pressures crashing against Christians and Christianity are on the rise and aren't likely to recede for some time. The West is fast becoming post-Christian, post-truth, and perhaps even post-tolerant. Our exile and persecution doesn't seem any longer to be a question of if Or even when but how far how far will we slide how much will we lose how long will it last and while those are all reasonable questions the more pressing and biblical question is this how will we respond how will we respond will we withdraw and keep the gospel to ourselves Or will we boldly offer the good news of Jesus regardless of the response we receive? The Apostle Paul's world was much more hostile to the gospel than ours. He was ridiculed, beaten, stoned, imprisoned, and eventually martyred for preaching this life-giving message. Yet he persisted no matter what he faced. And he would encourage us to do the same today. He would say to us, do not lose heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the model of Paul himself. May we sit at his feet, may we sit at your feet as we hear you speak to us. And Lord, do speak to each one of us this morning wherever we are on this journey. Help us to see the beauty and glory of you in the the gospel. And may that move us to share that word with the world that needs it. In Christ we pray. Amen. Well, Paul, Paul had every reason to lose heart. He knew that no matter how clearly or sensibly he presented the gospel... It was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Even when the gospel gained a foothold in Corinth, Paul was emotionally distressed when many of the members in that Corinthian church saw him as an imposter, a fraud, weak, frail, and incompetent. But Paul never, ever lost heart. This morning we're going to see why. And hopefully, we're going to learn from him. We're going to see three things that will encourage us. Focus on God's mercy. Redefine success. And prioritize God's glory. Focus on God's mercy. You know, our passage opens, chapter 4, verse 1, with these words, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God... We do not lose heart. You know, we've seen this ministry that Paul had over the last couple of weeks. It's the New Covenant ministry, a ministry that brings forgiveness of sins and transformation from the inside out. A ministry that turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. That gives us a new life in the Holy Spirit itself. It's a glorious ministry. This ministry, Paul says, and he highlights right here, was given to him by the mercy of God. See, Paul knew he he didn't deserve to have this ministry. He didn't deserve to have Jesus. Paul, previously known as Saul, had been a zealous, faithful follower of Judaism. He was a Pharisee on the rise, and perhaps he rose even to the apex being a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class of the Jews. But he was commissioned by the leaders to be a defender of the faith, and as a defender of the faith, he went about feeling his duty was to stamp out Christianity. He ravaged the church, entered house after house, dragging out men and women, bringing him to prison. Acts 9, 1 through 5 Excuse me, it records the time when God changed his life. I read, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, if he found any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, he's on his way. He approached Damascus And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul's encounter with Jesus turned his life around. He wasn't pursuing Jesus. Jesus was pursuing him. He was saved by God's mercy and commissioned by God's mercy to take the gospel to the world. See, there's two reasons why God's mercy drove Paul's ministry. The the first is the gratitude that he felt for God. You know, we've heard stories of somebody saving the life of another, and that person says, I owe my life to you. I want to serve you and that was Paul's attitude toward Christ. And he says that should be all of our attitudes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and he says, "You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body." You know, when we think about the depths of our sin in the judgment of God that awaited us because of our sin, And then we feel the relief when we hear the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ and realize that all of our sins are forgiven and that we are given a new life, a new way, a new hope, a new peace. When we focus on that, when we look at that mercy, we will want to share that gospel we'll want to share the good news of what Jesus accomplished, not just for us, but for others. The second reason that God's mercy drove Paul's evangelism was his desire to offer what he received. We hear it in the words he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, I received mercy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive this mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul was saying, I was the worst of all sinners. I was rescued by God's mercy so that everyone, even those who think they're irredeemable, even though they might feel they're the worst sinner, they will see in me that the worst of all sinners can be forgiven, and they can be forgiven. So as a redeemed sinner, Paul's heart was for all sinners. He wanted Everyone to experience what he experienced in God's mercy. And so he wrote in Romans 1 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. We should let God's mercy drive our desire to evangelize and we should redefine success in evangelism see one reason we lose heart in sharing the gospel is that we feel like failures when we share and people don't accept Christ we may share Jesus person doesn't believe we share Christ again unbelief another one rejection When this happens over and over again, our heart sinks and we become more and more discouraged. According to a Barna survey, only 25% of boomers, that's my generation, so it's not the young ones, (laughs) reported that they had had a conversation about Jesus that led someone to faith. Only 25%. You know, think about all the boomers over all the years who shared Jesus Christ, and only a quarter of them saw someone come to faith through what they shared. Three quarters never saw that. That's discouraging if we define success by numbers. But Paul didn't define success by numbers. Even though he witnessed thousands of conversions, he might have felt like, that's success. No, he had a different definition of success, and we see it in verses 2 through 4. It starts about how we share. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning, Or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul knew that if the gospel was rejected, it was not the fault of the evangelist. It was the result of Satan blinding minds. He referred to Satan as the God of this age. He wasn't saying that Satan is equal to God the Father, equal in power and authority and sovereignty. No, he was saying that our world has unconsciously followed Satan's lead, and therefore we have de facto made him our God. Jesus said the same when he called Satan the ruler of this world on three occasions. How is Satan the ruler of this world? He rules us when we're deceived by the same satanic lie that Adam and Eve believed. See, Satan promised them that if they went against God, they would become like God, knowing good and evil. So they followed Satan's lead and they supplanted God's truth with their own. We do the same. We are saying that we want to be our own God when we determine good and evil apart from God. When we live by what is right and wrong in our own eyes rather than by God's standards. And when we say there is no absolute truth, I have my truth that I live by. On each occasion we have said, I will determine good and evil, not God when we do this, we've succumbed to Satan's desires, and we're letting him rule us. Satan wants us to, keep us to keep us under his spell, so he does not want us to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He does not want us to realize that Jesus is the very image of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He does not want us to realize that Jesus is God and that Jesus sacrificed his life for us. So he blinds us. There's only one power that can take away the veil. It's God's power through the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit uses the word of God as his sword, his sword to cut into our hearts, to convict us of righteousness and judgment to lead us to the point where we realize we need a savior and we find that savior in Jesus Christ we can share the word of God but we can't make the blind see that's not success that's the Holy Spirit's job So success is when we fulfill our responsibility to be honest, forthright, purveyors of the undiluted truth of the gospel. When we do that, we're successful no matter what response we receive. You know, Jesus was rejected more often and more harshly than any of us. But he was successful because he spoke truth in love. And he lived that out in front of them. That was his success. He glorified the Father. Let us accept that as our definition of success. See, Paul described the practices that we need to avoid if we're to be forthright. We're not to be peddlers of God's word. You know, it's tempting to be slick salesmen who... To win people over, Paul modeled the opposite. He renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. You know, we often see that in commercials. The commercials pretend that they're looking out for us and they're offering us a product, the product that will fulfill us. All the while, all they're trying to do is line their own pockets by making sales. And they know their product can't produce what they apparently are promising. Jesus can produce what he promises, but there's a cost to it. And sometimes we want to hide that cost. You know, uh, a while back I shared the gospel with a relative of mine, and, and she said, But if I accept Jesus, he's going to want to change my life, and I won't be able to do the things that I'm doing now that I want to be doing. Now, I knew if I said, "Uh, don't worry about that. Jesus loves you. Just accept him. I'd be covering up. I'd be papering over the truth that is found in the gospel. I had to be honest and say, yes, he will change your life. And she has never accepted Christ. We can't cover up aspects of the gospel that people find distasteful. Paul said we sh- he would never tamper with God's word. You know, it's problematic to share messages in our culture which people don't like. Messages like, Jesus is the only way to God. It's difficult to say, you're a sinner. It's tough to say, you're not good enough to earn your way to God. Your religion doesn't get you to God. It's a lot easier to say, God loves you, just ask him into your heart, and he'll come. You know, there, there's some truth in these words, but only if they are preceded by the apparently harsh words I just spoke about, because to come to Jesus, a person needs to believe they need a Savior. That means they need to hear that they're sinners, that that sin separates from the God and brings them under the judgment of God and that they can't save themselves. So there's only one hope, to turn to God to save them, and he does through Jesus Christ in Christ's death on the cross for all of our sins. We can lead a person through through these truths sensitively, and we should, but we can never tamper with the gospel to win people over. We can never manipulate people. You know, people might ask questions about hot-button issues, and our biblical answers will turn them away. We, again, should sensitively help them see why God disagrees with our cultural values. But we must not compromise God's word to assuage them. Honesty and authenticity are critical if our desire is to be successful in God's eyes. As Paul wrote, by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's what matters most. We should present the gospel as though... We were in the presence of God. Verse 5 captures another key element of successful evangelism. We read, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake, for Jesus' sake. In these verses, we see the I am third attitude again. It's not about us. We don't proclaim ourselves. We're third. It's not about us being impressive or safeguarding our reputations or ensuring that we don't upset somebody else or that we're canceled. It's about Jesus. He's first. It's about presenting Jesus for who he is and what he has done. It's about exalting him as Lord. And it's about others. They're second. We proclaim Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants. We are servants of the people we share with. You know, when we offer the gospel, we can come across as arrogant, judgmental, and as though we're lording it over them as anything but their servants. Do we speak in such a way that they feel we're their servants? That we're really wanting the best for them? Or do we make it about ourselves? The measure of successful evangelism is being forthright, honest, authentic, and truthful conveyors of God's word, exalting Christ as Lord. It's not about how many believe our message. As Paul wrote earlier, Our message, our job, is to be the aroma of Christ and leaving the results to God. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? Sometimes we're the fragrance of death. But even then, we're a success as long as we're the fragrance of Christ. We'll not lose heart if we focus on God's mercy, if we redefine successful evangelism, and if we prioritize the glory of God. This really hit home uh, through Eric Raymond's talk at the Life on Mission conference two years ago. See, the biggest problem in our evangelism is that we're self-centered. Some, like the opponents of Paul, showed their self-centeredness by preaching God's word out of selfish ambition, serving their own interests rather than Christ's. But more often, the problem with us sharing the gospel is our concern out of what other people are going to think of us. How will I come across? Will I seem foolish, judgmental, out of touch, hostile, arrogant, narrow-minded? How will others respond? Will they judge me? Will they reject me? Will they gossip about me? Will they cancel me? To overcome this attitude, we can focus on what the gospel brings other people, like Paul did. God's mercy, the forgiveness of sin, the eradication of guilt, a relationship with God, eternal life, purpose in life, a peace that surpasses understanding, and we could go on and on and on. We could be motivated by other-centeredness rather than self-centeredness but there's an even greater motivation to be God-centered, to prioritize the glory of God. You know, if we knew that every time we shared the gospel, a person would believe, we'd be sharing it over and over and over and over again, every time possible. But that doesn't happen. But there is something that does happen every time we share the gospel clearly, and that is God is glorified. He's glorified because we offer a message that presents him in the fullness of his glory. Look at verse 6. For God who said, "Light, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let's unpack this verse. You know, Genesis teaches us that at the dawn of creation, there was only darkness. And then God said, Let there be light, and the light dispelled the darkness wherever it shone. This verse says that the same God has shown a light into the heart of every believer. And that light is the knowledge of the glory of God. That light's the gospel. You know, we know it's the gospel because of that last phrase. This light shines in the face of Jesus Christ. We have a greater knowledge of the glory of God when we look at the character and work of Jesus. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Our verse says that the knowledge of the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, both are true. However, the latter supersedes the former. Creation declares the glory of God by showing his power, his majesty, his sovereignty, his lordship, his faithfulness and to some degree his wisdom and his love. But the life and death of Jesus Christ declares these as well, and often in a deeper and greater way because they are personalized. These attributes of God are personalized as we see God's work through Jesus Christ. And it reveals additional features of God's glory. For we would never understand how holy God is without sin coming into the world. We would never understand the justice of God if we never saw his judgment for sin. We would never see mercy and grace if we didn't see forgiveness. We would never understand, begin to grasp, the incomprehensibility of the grandeur of what God would go through for us out of his love. We would never see the full display of his goodness without realizing that we can become like Christ in our new lives. And the blessings we receive by giving the opportunity to share a message that touches people for eternity. The glory of God is on greatest display when we see his supremacy over death itself, and when we see the perfection of his wisdom as he brings an eternal plan together where he is both holy and just and loving and merciful and grace-filled, all brought together in one place, the cross of Jesus Christ. And the power and glory of God explodes in the resurrection and overcoming death. The glory of God is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So every time that gospel is shared, clearly, He is glorified. But does that matter to us? It should if we pray... Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your name be lifted up as holy. Let the whole world see you in the grandeur of your glory and fall down and worship you. May the whole world see you and give you the honor and glory that you deserve. 1 Peter 2 says you are a chosen race, believers, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. As great as our desire is to see people receive eternal life, our desires for God to be glorified should be even greater. by seeing more and more worshipers brought into his kingdom. Our love for others should drive us to evangelize, but our passion for God's glory should be an even greater motivation. This morning's passage also implies that when we let the gospel light shine in and through us, we shine the glory of God to the world around us. Our passage points us back to the previous verse, chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we behold the glory of the Lord in the gospel, that brings transformation. That brings us being transformed into the same image of the one we're looking at, and that's Jesus. And we grow from one one level of glory to a greater level of glory by doing what? By looking in the face of Jesus, by looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ, by beholding his glory. It's one of the reasons we say we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That means to be the foundation because that's where transformation of us happens, the continuing transformation. We are to be transformed when we are transfixed by Jesus, his person and his work. The key is to always be looking at Jesus, how he lived and what he accomplished. There we find our fulfillment in the grace of the cross. There we have hope. There we are filled with God's love. There we find security, purpose in life. Look at the gospel. Then we will shine the light of God's glory to the world. And that light will glorify God. Focus on God's mercy redefine success in evangelism and most of all prioritize God's glory and we won't lose heart. We'll share the gospel whenever we can. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we again just are so grateful for your word, for the truth that, that you you give to us the, the perspective that you offer. May your spirit drive that, these truths home to my heart, God, for I know I, I, I fail. I thank you that you've, you've spoken to me, and I pray that uh, I won't move on without truly, truly living at the foot of the cross. I pray that for each one of us, O oh Lord. Amen.